Let's recap it. lately as well so we finally finished it recently hey like um all six seasons it does lose its way about season five hey yeah i'm in season five at the beginning and it's starting to i mean why did chevy chase have to be such a racist prick like you know like it was such a good dynamic you know why do you have to be such an intolerable human being (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyway Anyway. (laughs) hello hello people (laughs) hey um yeah Hey guys, uh, Caleb and Jared here. Uh, sadly, uh, our wonderful co-host Christine was not able to join us this evening. I'm um, not feeling the best, so our thoughts and prayers go out to her. No, but seriously, you know. Um, <laughs> cool. So um, we've got a fun one for you guys tonight. Uh, Jared, tell, tell the people what, what we've got tonight. Um, hey, twos or threes. Um, you know me, if I ever get the chance to just twist the knife with Caleb a little bit, you know, um, how twos and threes is the unironic name. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest, it's better than we fellow heathens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one or two gathered, I think that's kind of like a funny little, you know, dumb joke. Yeah, anyway, you actually gave me a great opportunity to just like be formal, and I totally ruined it. Forgive me, fan base. (laughs) Yeah, tonight we thought we would discuss, we were just kind of playing around with topics and ideas about what we could um, cast about coming up, um, the three of us, individual conversations, DMs, yada, yada. (laughs) Um, And it came across this idea of like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to talk about? the crazy theories surrounding Jesus because as presented by Christianity, like compelling, powerful, you know, influential figure cannot be denied by any person. I'm not talking Christian here. Any person you read the scriptures, you read about the account of Jesus. There's something truly significant about the person of Jesus and the presentation of Jesus. Mm. Um, to Christians, this is a no-brainer. It's because he is everything that he said he was about himself. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is the Savior. He is Emmanuel. He is I Am. Um, he is the Son of God. But to non-Christians, when it comes to some of these claims about himself um, and made about Jesus, you know, indirectly rather than directly by him, they leave a lot of things where it's like you can't really you don't know where to put Jesus. It's kind of a, um, as the off-quoted um, mentioned by C.S. Lewis, um, he can either only be, only be liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, he doesn't leave room for you to accept him on anything but these, te- these terms. He either was lying about himself or was self-deceived or, you know, didn't have the whole truth regarding things. or he was totally nuts, totally mad, the kind of things like saying, um, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Or, you know, uh, what are some of the other normally loopy sayings that Jesus said about himself? I am the bread of life. Mm. Um, I am the gate. Um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's pretty mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. I am the I am. Exactly, right? Like, you know, saying like, I am, you know, Elohim. I am the... I am God. Yeah. Presentation of God. You know, um, as 
accounted for in Exodus chapter four, um, where Moses was talking to the burning bush and God revealed himself in that. Anyway, all this to say, uh, Jesus doesn't really leave in the way he talks about himself and the way he has talked about in scripture room for anything but. So people have to kind of do something with that figure. Was he a great moral teacher? Was he divine in some sense, you know, mortal, um, but also divine? Was he just human? Uh, and so you see a lot of trends with these different beliefs around actually Jesus. So what we uh, wanted to talk about tonight was essentially this idea of uh, the crazy theories around who Jesus is. Um, we preface that crazy because some of them are just outright ludicrous. Hmm. Some are a bit more sensible, but with actually a bit more, you know, dissecting and actually looking into with a bit of study, you can actually see actually these don't stand up. Hmm. Um, they either self-implode or actually when compared with the scriptural account, the scriptural presentation of Jesus, that is just found to be far more compelling. It's found to actually uh, refute the teachings of Jesus, um, refute the teachings that these other religions, these other mystery religions, these other cults, sects would present about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that's our topic tonight. We're wanting to talk about the crazy theories surrounding Jesus and actually go f- through a bunch of them just to actually um, educate ourselves and educate the, you know, the common layperson Christian who's thinking, well, oh, I've heard this interesting idea about Jesus is this or Jesus is that. What do I as a Christian do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, without getting further into it, uh, let's let's uh, get introed. Cool. So, uh, welcome everyone to Two or Three Gathered. Two or Three Gathered is a series of conversations with Christian brothers and sisters, considering their efforts and contributions to the kingdom vocationally, their stories and testimonies of God's sovereignty and grace, and an opportunity to tackle the relevant issues the church faces in the 21st century. In this, we seek to equip the saints by networking within the body, starting the conversation around often taboo subjects and seeking to develop unity across Christian denominations and traditions by opening up discussion on worthy, necessary topics. We want to help educate the wider body of Christ by asking these experts and people of wisdom across multiple fields the hot button questions and sophisticated questions that we believe there are answers for in Christ church but that there's not necessarily always access to we want to further the growth of knowledge and wisdom in ourselves to worship God with our minds and fellowship with all of you as we collectively seek to discern what God glorifying discipleship looks like for us in our respective vocations and our spheres of influence Mm. It is our heart and hope that Christ himself would be in our midst as we converse about these things we believe he himself is very interested in. Kia ora twos and threes. Thanks for gathering with us. Um, So probably worth saying to start off with, uh, when we talk about these different things, and we have a whole series tonight, some we'll spend a bit more time on, some we'll spend less on. there are some common themes that Caleb and I actually kind of see associated with these different uh, beliefs. Yeah. Um, For example, the common themes we see is that there's commonly an assuming of divine authority via via an association or, you know, a self-representation 
or of an appropriation of Jesus's narrative. Um, there is, or, or there is a, a denying of his claims about himself and or asserting some of them to advance the other belief system in question, mm. um, say be it, you know, Islam, for example, or Baha'i faith, we'll get to some of those a bit later. Or there's a kind of syncretism or pluralism that says that mutually exclusive dogma doesn't actually matter all that much. Mm. Um, there seems to be a pretty common assumption um, within all these kind of belief systems, uh, knowingly, unknowingly, uh, that an endorsement of Jesus lends credibility to one's own doctrines. Mm. Like, say, I think about the representation in Islam, they venerate Jesus and they hold him as one of the four key messengers of uh, their faith, but they deny his claims about him being God. Um, you know, that's, in, that's in accordance with, say, their um, beliefs around a non-Trinitarian God, but we'll get to some mm -hmm. of that a bit later. Yeah. Um, but what must be understood, and that kind of refutes and actually defeats a lot of these uh, counter claims is Jesus's unique cultural, covenantal, prophetic, and historic context. So that's mm -hmm. cultural, covenantal, prophetic, historic context. And just the serendipity of all of these circumstances together are hard to dismiss. We say cultural because Jesus was a Jewish man, and there was a lot of uh, things that he lived out in his lifetimes, things he, uh, roles he assumed, things he did that actually make sense of actually his mission, who he was and who he became, and actually in the context of the meta-narrative of scripture. Covenantal, because there was a ongoing fulfillment of uh, Mosaic covenants, Davidic covenants, that is so tied up with the Jewish identity um, that the person of Jesus fulfilled those promises in such exacting ways which leads on to that idea of prophetic. Um, there were some scholars, uh, they estimate as many as 100 plus prophecies in the Old Testament um, regarding the actual person of Jesus and uh, who he was. Um, some estimate less, but all of these kind of giving a very clear picture of who the Messiah was and Jesus fulfills a staggering amount of them. And mm. we say historic as well because the unique timing of Jesus's incarnation into history uh, leaves a lot of things that are like just really hard to ignore that actually yeah. made for the spread of Christian religion um, not long afterwards. Like all of these things together, they just kind of make it. It's like that's a lot of coincidence upon coincidence upon coincidence that's yeah. compiled about this unique person of Jesus and the unique timing. It's hard to dismiss. Um, as anything but as Jesus presents himself. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I think, some common things to just start off with and just actually present before we get into some of these. Indeed. Dear friend, um, do you want to start us off on, on our first topic on what we actually talk about? Cool. So um, I guess we'll start with uh, uh, the a fun one, Jesus as other gods or ancient gods are there is a theory out there that jesus was something of an imitation that the story of jesus was something of an imitation or a copycat or it was a you know of of different gods horus um dionysus mithra um 
got a couple others here, I think. Or maybe I don't, but... Um, yeah, oh, oh, sorry, Osiris. Osiris. Horus, yep. Yeah, um, uh, Demuzi, Tammuz, uh, Adonis. Um, and... Zoroastrian, also, Zoroastrian faith, is that another? Uh, no, Zoroastrian... I don't believe so. Uh, the similarities to Zoroastrianism was basically monotheism. Um, uh, but I, was Jesus a copycat of these stories of dying and rising gods? Um, short answer is no. Not at all. Uh, and I say that confidently and without... Um, arrogance. Uh, the, this is this is me having consulted the experts, the, the sub the subject matter experts, scholars, both mainstream and Christian. Um, and I guess to address this uh, topic, we first need to look at where this comes from, where these claims come from. Now, I'm not entirely sure where they first originated, but where they became popular in today's society is from two sources. One, uh, a documentary, a three-part documentary series called Scheitgeist, sorry, Zeitgeist, um, uh, and another documentary called Religious, made by Bill Maher. Were these... Um turn of the century like were yep. they quite early, early to mid 2000s hmm. so zeitgeist was a conspiracy theory you know it, it had three parts it had um politics religion and economics and it was talking about how all these three major things are out there to control us as a people and, and it had a long it, it, had, it had a lot of um like any good conspiracy theory and again, keep in mind, audience, I'm not dismissing conspiracy theories. I love them. I believe some. I used to believe a whole lot more than what I do. Um, in fact, I, I've quite liked the meme that's going around a lot lately, you know, what wasn't uh, said, and this is in relation to COVID stuff, um, what was called a conspiracy theory six months ago is news today. Um, I, I just quite like the meme. <laughs> but anyway. Um, it, it was talking about these different things and, and the part about the ancient dying and rising gods is it makes these comparisons to gods like Mithra, um, Adonis, uh, Osiris, saying that these gods, uh, Krishna even, these gods had very similar stories. They were born on December 25th, which, by the way, most of the church, especially official claimants, have pretty much never said that they are sure that Jesus was born on December 25th. And one, fact, one, one thing I've heard recently is that it was actually more likely around about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which kind of makes more sense about possibly. the idea of like God as Emmanuel, if we take that to the account. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. If, 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 you read, if you read Reversing Herman hmm. um, by Michael Heiser, um, who we will have a bit to say about something later uh another topic in this cast later tonight 
Listen, it wouldn't like you know how many minutes in? Ten minutes in? Fifteen minutes in? And we've already made a Doctor Heiser reference. Of course, of course, wouldn't be mentioning Heiser. Um, <laughs> wouldn't be us. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you do end up watching this, uh, Doctor Heiser, we would love to have you on. Uh, I will be requesting that very soon. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, can I can I can I interject? Sorry to like, yes, go for it. Interrupt your stream of thought. You mentioned control before about like that Mm. this idea of religion was developed um so one thing i've heard it said is the christian religion was kind of developed as a state religion for kind of like a Mm. uh, control of the masses you know it's it was a way of actually kind of aligning people to a peaceful religion as a way of actually uh yeah psychological warfare to kind of actually you know control people right is that kind of where you're going with this no um, no we'll, we'll get to that one later okay um, yeah so i mean like oh well, i want to say to you on that like you know like some dismiss uh the inconsistencies and they present the historical human figure of jesus and they say syncretism is the reason right like yeah. so this is one way of kind of you know debunking um so like for right that secular scholarship mostly says this and they dismiss the mythological argument that's one argument you've heard right uh yes uh, however secular scholarship um but we'll, we'll get to the jesus potentially not existing later but mm. um before that i will say secular scholarship dismisses that almost entirely uh, they they agree that jesus existed in terms of new testament scholars that uh disagree that jesus even existed um jesus the jewish man uh, of nazareth died on a cross probably less than five um from last i saw when i looked into it um about a year ago Mm -hmm. um but for for this idea of yeah so with zeitgeist they 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 claimed that um oh where i was saying sorry um so about jesus's birth um it's if people read reversing herman which like i was saying heiser um has written about if you consult the book of revelation he has a few things to say about the star um the, the 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 vision of the stars and where they were when jesus was born that narrows it down to a three hour time span um i won't say when because then people if i give the date people will uh, either believe it or dismiss it based on the date you've got to hear the argument before you hear the date um so look it up um Reversing Hermon by Michael Heiser. Um, so, so that they believe that there are all these uh, related ideas, born on the 25th, but by a virgin, um, visited by wise men, uh, died, rose again, uh, fed many with miracles, raised people from the dead, uh, walked on water, did... Thing is, disciples yeah the thing is first off in both bill mars religious and 
in Zeitgeist, they talk about this and they say that they that some of these gods have the exact same story. They don't. They'll have one or two things lined up. Mm-hmm. But second, these writings come not only is the approach that Bill Maher and uh, the creators of Zeitgeist are using is terrible, terrible um, <laughs> scholarship and reasoning. Mm. It's just not historically accurate. Mm. The writings from these religions came hundreds of years after the writings of the New Testament were compiled right. and accepted generally mm. uh, by the early church. Um, there were some differences in what they believed the New Testament. Some of them included other writings. Some of them didn't include Hebrews or Revelation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But that's beside the point. These ancient gods just did not have stories that predated Christ that were the mm. same. Mm. So if anything, these dying and rising God stories are copying Christ's. Yes, yes. So, so if, if I gather what you're saying so far, that these points of distinction, uh, mm-hmm. there are more points of distinction it, it, than there are points of similarity between these yes. accounts. Yeah, that, that's that's one I've actually come across consistently, even from like a rudimentary research. We've yep. got a couple of good um, links we'll put in the description that kind of illustrate yep. this as well. Um, you're saying as well that actually um, the fact is that there was a historical person, Jesus, that yep. did live and die. Yeah, um, we'll talk a bit more about that a little later on. But the you know historians, you know philosophers of religion, like all sorts of experts and scholars, will actually attest to this fact that there was an actual Jesus, and so therefore, if he fits this profile of you know a mythical god man who actually fulfilled all these accounts, while the other ones can actually be said to be kind of spurious and non-reliable. Jesus actually was an actual person that's accounted for yeah. and attested for and did these things, you know, juries out on actually the, the uh, resurrection, right? Because that's often the kind of the, the linchpin, which actually says you're a Christian and I'm not <laughs> others, yeah. other significant things as well, uh, account for dogma. But what do you, you're also seeing then saying this idea of uh the mythological developments of these religions came well after Christian doctrine was more or less established, um, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if we talk about the compilation of the canon that happened, uh, the canon of scripture, I mean, there, mm-hmm. that happened around the late end of the first century, um, there was obviously debate within the church later on about what books were canonical and what weren't, but... Mm-hmm. The, all the accepted books of scripture were finished by the turn the end of the first century mm. and meaning that these developments of these mystery religion gods and sects and cults uh, those developments historically were actually accounted for after the life of Jesus after the established traditions and doctrines of the of uh, around Jesus and the New Testament epistles and yeah am, am I with you so far that's that's the account yeah very much so so yeah uh, yeah but i wanted to ask you then like also like one critique i have heard is that actually um this christian teaching of actually who jesus was has actually developed right Mm. and so like you know like if you look at say for example uh, i know where i stand on this but i want to i just want to see your thoughts on this um um the gospel of mark being 
you know, historically held to to be one of the earlier, the earliest gospel um, of the four gospels, mm-hmm. you know, there is an argument made that actually the theology around who Jesus was wasn't as developed as say late the later on gospel, say like the likes of John, yeah. where it's like, oh, you know, Mark just kind of it's not really clear that he's the son of God. John chapter one, he's the logos, he's the mm-hmm. he's the big deal, there's all these I am statements. And yeah. so the actual theology developed as the Christian church developed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What do you make of that? Well, there's definitely no denying that John had a much more clear and um, uh, developed Christology. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, that is the study or the, the, the theory of Christ and his deity. Um, John definitely had that more than the other Gospels, and uh, Revelation definitely has that. Mm. Um, but the thing is, uh, when... That, that, that still doesn't deny that Christ made claims that were very, very much of his own deity. Um, I can't pick them off the top of my head right now, but if you look at, I, I think this is where we as the Christian church have let ourselves and our witness down dramatically. We don't, and, and this is something that um we were talking to Rod Thompson with in our cast that we released recently. We don't elevate the right parts of scripture. And by that, I mean, we elevate certain parts over others. This is what Rod was saying, uh, but we don't bring the other things up to be as important, even though they may not seem important. The example Rod gave was, you know, something in Proverbs that brings much wisdom and helpfulness for, for my day won't be as helpful for me going to work, um, you know, as something about seminal emissions. That's not really going to be as uplifting or helpful even. But the thing is, it's just as important because it's in there. (laughs) It's in there. Um, It's in there. And even so... we don't study our Old Testament enough and mm. we don't understand the cultural context that brought it mm. forth, mm-hmm. nor do we understand the cultural context that the New Testament writers were living in. Yeah, sure. And where I'm getting with that in relation to this is that there are so many direct quotes and hints towards Old Testament writings that we completely miss, A, in English, mm. B, as people who don't understand the cultural context of the second temple period, Jewish Mm. faith. Mm. Um, And because of this, a lot of Christology that is put forth in all four gospels, we miss it entirely. Um, Mm. And some people who do some great work around that, again, Michael Heiser. Great. Um, uh, a scholar by the name of Craig Keener has done some good stuff that I've seen recently. Mm. Um, there, there are just a lot of things if you just look, and we will link some some great yes. um, some great things around that in, in mm. the description to uh, to to bring some people up to up to speed mm. about how to read the Old Testament reflections mm. in the new. 
Mm. Well, like one thing I will say there is like, um, so an article I came across in speaking to, you know, the divinity of Jesus is presented in um, Mark. Mm. Uh, you have, for example, uh, very early on in uh, Mark 2, you have the healing of the paralytic. So it's pretty early on in the gospel. Mm. Um, he says he has the power to forgive sins and he identifies himself as the son of man. So that's yeah. a very clear claim to divinity right there. The son of a man is a reference to um, an Old Testament book of the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. Mm. Um, the son of man is very clearly a divine figure. Yeah. Pfizer, I believe I've actually heard him talk about this passage and, and referring to the Judaic school of thought of the two persons of God. Mm. So not exactly triune thinking, but there was actually a school of rabbinic thought that actually understood, oh, there are actually two people that are God here, not as well formed as the Trinity, but this predates, you know, the New Testament by some mm. years, maybe as uh, early as 200 BC, where they're actually talking about there are two persons of God. Yeah. And so the son of man was recognized as one of those figures. And this is one of Jesus's favorite self-identifying monikers. He often referred to himself mm. as the son of man as the fulfillment of that passage. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, the event where he actually walked on water. Um, there's obviously that, you know, sovereignty over nature that is actually realized. Mm. Um, there's also the self-realization of I am in that exchange with his disciples. Yeah. Um, we know in the Christology of John, there's the seven I am statements um, which is clearly, you know, echoing back as we talked to previously, the Exodus account, God's revelation in the bush, um, I am who I am, um, the Yahweh name, that sacred name which Jews didn't even speak, Jesus using this name to casually refer to himself, heresy in the ears of some, uh, mm. and a confirmation of exactly who he was to others. Which is um, funny so that a lot of Jews, sorry, uh, it's funny mm. that a lot of Jews brought about that idea of not speaking the name Yahweh because Moses told in Exodus, I believe, I don't remember where. In Exodus, Exodus 4, I think, yeah. He, he told people, you know, he spoke to Aaron, he spoke to other people, go and tell them Yahweh has sent me. And, and it yeah, says the right. word Yahweh, you know, speak the name. And he's not just speaking to, and even if he's just speaking to Aaron, the whole high priestlyhood mm. hadn't been kind of really worked out entirely yet. No, no. Um, but he's saying, tell these people Yahweh has sent us, you know? Mm. So, mm. yeah, that's yeah. And that, and on, on, on the side. But yeah. Well, I think as well, like the whole idea of like the doctrines of the church developing, like um, in the case for Christ, um. I think it was um, in the interview with William Lane Craig, he talks about a, an ancient creed being used by the church to actually talk about the person of Christ. And I think it's in Philippians where this creed is actually quoted. Is uh, it in Corinthians? Yeah, I think you. Which is the correct. first written, the earliest written text in the New Testament. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so there's a reference to that creed that would have been in use. Uh, I think we actually mentioned this in the Nine Arguments cast. So you can go back yeah. there if you want to check this a little yeah. bit more. Um that creed an affirmation of belief in christ would have been in use within five years of christ's death and resurrection mm. like yeah histor historical newsflash essentially you know like yeah. um and so like there's a really clear in that creed a really clear establishment of 
This was the divinity of Jesus. This was the mission of Jesus. This is who he was. Not enough time for mythological legendary development. There was a very yeah. clear consensus, even very early on in the uh, Messianic Jewish movement, <laughs> yeah. um, about who Jesus was and who uh, what his mission was. Um, I would even advance as well, like the fact that there is conflation of ideas and um, reveals theological thought about what people thought God did and what he was responsible for. Um, this commonality sense actually suggests consensus, not duplicity or skepticism, right? It's yeah. like, like um, I read something recently about Philo of Alexandria, who was one of the Hellenistic Jews, um, mm. talking about this idea of the Logos. And actually the Logos being like a demiurge, you know, half God, half man idea. Yeah. Um, when then John uses that in John chapter one, verses one to five in the gospel of John. And he talks about Jesus being the Logos, but then makes clear what the Logos is in his understanding. Yeah. It's a borrowing from the cultural milieu, but it's also like an apologetic, isn't it? It's actually yeah. like he's taking- It's, it's a polemic. Yeah. Yes, he's, he's taking something in the culture and he's actually saying, um, this is part of the picture, but let me be really clear on what is the truth of these matters. And yeah. like, I think like, um, yeah, the commonality that there's like these ideas exist, again, that suggests consensus, not skepticism. It's yeah. like the flood account in the Old Testament. If the Bible in its creation account didn't mention the flood, that would cause it to be dubious, not yeah. less so, because most ancient cultural accounts mention the flood. Yeah. As one such example. Yeah. Hmm. I, I wanted to say there, you mentioned Dr. Michael Heiser before as well. Yeah. Um, that shows actually quite conclusively that a biblical perspective of other gods, we're talking reversing Herman here. And what's the other book that um, reversing Herman and the unseen realm, the unseen realm. Thank you. Um, it shows his work quite conclusively shows that a biblical perspective of other gods is either the divine council members, so angelic yeah. figures, other Elohim, little E, not big mm -hmm. E, um, or it's demonic entities. Um, and so, like, you know, there's numerous passages in the Old Testament that talk about, you know, um, Deuteronomy comes to mind, Deuteronomy 32, where they're actually talking about um, other religions that are worshipping demons. That's why there was some sense of spiritual significance and power. And then, you know, you, I wouldn't be surprised if there were visions and miracles of a sort or supernatural events of a sort because they were worshipping spiritual entities right yeah um i think and, and, and they had uh, been allotted they had been uh, yes as verse 8 mentions in the table of nations those spiritual beings had been given authority over those nations by yes. yahweh himself which heiser calls the the deuteronomy 32 worldview i think um, yeah that's the phrase he refers to um but with regards to this jesus as ancient gods myth or theory um a view on this regarding say divine council theology um we could suspect that spiritual warfare would include an attempt to conflate and water down all these distinctions or to deny the imperative of jesus is saying he's emmanuel or jesus is saying he's the son of god or you know, they, of course, that would make sense that, you know, the devil, Satan would try and be like, how do I actually make this all the same or deny that it's actually relevant at all? Like, I totally see as well, like, this isn't just the Old Testament. You, the New Testament is also consistent on this teaching of worshipping demons. You know, first, I mentioned a couple of verses here. First Timothy 4, verse 1 to 2. 
Matthew 24, where Jesus speaks at length to his disciples about what will happen in the last days. Yeah. Um, I have here Romans 16, verse 17 to 20, where Paul is, you know, uh, warning about false teachers and what to expect and how to guard against them. First John 4, verse 1 to 4, um, talks about actually what to expect with the Antichrist. Um, there's a number of other passages, and I can actually yeah. in the comments, but this shows that this New Testament teaching of, you know, worshipping demons actually other gods actually presenting themselves as like we are the way the truth and the life yeah. is actually as the biblical account makes sense of you know false and a worshiping of things that are not the true god mm. so um should we leap into our next one i take it yeah yeah i feel like have we washed our hands of that one piloted yep. that one so as we say no <laughs> no yeah. Uh, myth busted. Yeah. <laughs> um, we need that stamp thing, eh? Um, yeah, so our next one that we want to look at then is, okay, well, if not uh, Jesus as ancient gods, what about um, Jesus as revealed in modern day cult leaders mm -hmm. or Jesus as spiritual leaders throughout the ages? You know, obviously there have been certain people throughout history who have said like, oh, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus, you know, like, um, look, I've come back, I've returned, you know. Yeah. trying to actually fulfill out the fulfill the eschaton and saying like here's everything you've been hoping for i'm it if you look up on youtube or even just like on google like you know yeah. people who are saying they're jesus you get quite a few hits pretty quickly like you do you do people. get quite a few um mm. they're within a variety of religious backgrounds as well mm. Mm. um so what do we do friend what do we do when we say you know you're neighbor down the street says like he starts a cult commune and says like i'm jesus i'm back always start with skepticism okay always you know test the spirits um but when it when it comes to a lot of these um you've got all kinds of people uh and really a big thing follow the money that's that's a big <laughs> a big question to look into mm. um i wouldn't uh, from a new zealand perspective i wouldn't be surprised if we had a certain uh Rotorua and south auckland based church leader come out saying he's changed his name to uh bishop brian ben tamaki um <laughs> you know i am uh he, he has never claimed to be Christ, by the way. Just as a disclaimer, I'm not saying that. Uh, don't come after me, Tamaki. I actually, prison. I actually support you <laughs> on your uh, fight when it comes to the yeah, COVID man. level of things. Yeah, man. Your theology is garbage, however. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love you, though. I love you. Um, but... Yeah, modern day cult leaders claiming to be Jesus. It almost always ends in a, oh, I don't know about this, but a lot of the time it ends in a sex cult. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You get quite a few in Brazil by the looks of it, mm. uh, when it when they're going after the money. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I've, I've come across a lot in Brazil in the past. I've mm. never been, but I mean, when I've been looking it up online, that kind of thing. Well, when I came across um, one Bible verse, which I thought was actually quite applicable to what you're saying about following money, yeah. um, Matthew 7, 
uh, 14 to 18, this is Jesus' words to his disciples. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick groups from grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So uh, it's like you're saying there that extension of that extension of like, you know, follow the money, right? Is actually, or, you know, mm-hmm. follow the Harlem. <laughs> yeah. You know, if Harlem, they're yeah. assuming to be actually Jesus, well, do their actual words match up with a, a critical analysis of actually who Jesus said he was, his actions yeah. were, you know, even not even Jesus, just actually if they're claiming to be a prophet representing God, do their actions match up? Because yeah. it's like that's a significant claim in and of itself to say that you come from God, but say you're Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um there, there's and, and we'll get into this uh later when we, we speak a bit more, but um some listeners may be familiar with um the late great Nabil Qureshi, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, um died quite young in his early to mid-30s of pancreatic cancer. He was raised an Ahmadiyya Muslim. Now, and and he he was very well versed in Islam. He followed the five pillars. Uh, so, any Sunnis or Shiites out there who say he wasn't true Muslim because he was Ahmadiyya, Ahmadiyya Muslims do follow the five pillars, which most strong hadiths do say. To be a Muslim, you follow the five pillars. He definitely did. His family did. Uh, his family still do his families who are, his family who are still Muslim. Um, but anyway, he was converted to he he had several dreams and visions. Uh, after many debates with a friend of his, David Wood, who's a current apologist. Um, and anyway, he was converted to Christianity. Now, uh, yeah. seven apologetics. X17 apologetics. X17 apologetics, yes, look me up. Um, so anyway, in his Muslim background, the Ahmadiyya Muslims, what se- separates them predominantly from most other Islamic sects is their leader, who is now dead, I believe. His, his surname, I don't remember his first name, I'll look it up. Now, please, Arabic speakers, uh, Forgive me if I'm um, pronouncing it incorrectly. But anyway, it was started by a man. Um, I think his name was Misra Ghulam Ahmad. And he claimed to be the resurrection of, or the, the, the second coming of Christ, the Messiah. Hmm. Um, and it was, it was a very, uh, I, I don't know a huge amount of the theology around their sect of Islam, I know it was very focused on dispensationalism of within Islam, which is different from Christian dispensationalism. But mm. either way, this man claimed to be the new Jesus. Now, Muslims don't believe Jesus to be holy, holy as divine, rather. They believe him to be a holy prophet. Um, but he came and delivered his final thing because most Muslims do believe the Messiah will return again because. They don't believe everything that was written of what Jesus said is true, but they do believe it's true that 
when he said he would come again. They believe that. Um, in fact, most of them don't even believe that he actually died on the cross. Um, but that's we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, so it, within Islam, even there are people claiming to be the second coming of Jesus, and I think a lot of this comes from potentially a problematic view of eschatology within Christendom and how much it's affected Western thought. Um, when you look into the history of premillennialism and dispensationalism, mm. it, it's a very new thought within Christendom, mm. two centuries old at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for anyone interested in looking at a fair but honest representation, well, not representation, but fair but honest uh, examination rather of premillennialism and where it comes from. Look up Bruce Gore's work. Bruce Gore is a uh, Presbyterian um, academic and um, and uh, pastor. He he can recite you the entire book of Revelation word for word in one of the english translations but he can read greek and hebrew um and he has studied it extensively that's an upcoming podcast of ours eh? just like reciting one of an entire books the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna sit there and read it like this is that'll be i'm looking at the screen but it looks like i'm looking at the camera <laughs> i'm reciting this off the top of my head it's like it's like john piper's look at the book but even like just further just like yeah like we'll just be reading the Levitical laws. <laughs> we we actually did that um, uh, early on. I, I kicked myself for not carrying it on, but we're we're, we're trying to get back in the the habit. Mm. We would every day read uh, passages of scripture to Lottie. We went through the entire books of Luke and Acts, Esther, Genesis, Leviticus, most of Deuteronomy, and mm. I think we stopped partway through Deuteronomy. Um, I'm surprised we made it through all of Leviticus. Um, That was tough. Just sitting there every night reading about, um, yeah, about laws about what she will have to do one day when she's on her period, which which we hold to. But listen, listen, if she's if she's going to be 13 years old someday, she's going to have to do her bar mitzvah or the you know. the hebrew equivalent for women no like so you know yeah got a soaker in the torah now is what i'm saying <laughs> yeah 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 definitely um, um i, I yeah. want to come off something you said before if i may um because it's it's curious around like again this assumption of uh people wanting to present themselves as jesus right yeah um one thing to be conscious of it's like and it's it's reflective in that passage that i mentioned right on matthew chapter seven is that actually jesus himself warned there would be antichrists a little a year antichrists who would rise up and lead astray in the last days so that's actually a fulfillment of eschatology that we can expect this that jesus himself warned of this um and that their lives and their witness would easily refute what is said um 
So and if, if it's not the fruit that actually refutes what they're doing, a good confirmation is has often proved the case throughout history when these people have actually jumped up at different times is the things that they say are going to come true. Do they come true? Um, because that's also a similar standard within um, the wider meta narrative of scripture and how we actually deal with false prophecy, right? Like, is their prophecy confirmed? And that yeah. vindicates actually this was a, a true prophet or this was not, right? Yeah. Um, Jesus himself actually said in those various eschatological passages that are sprinkled throughout the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels, that actually in the, the oft-referred-to day of the Lord, the language he uses, and that's used a lot within the Old Testament, and with a couple of times in the New Testament as well, this phrase, the day of the Lord, um, he has said that all eyes would see and all ears would hear when Christ returns. So that being kind of a confirmation of like, it's not just going to be, hey, come over this way or look over that way, <laughs> which is actually what kind of Jesus comically says as well. Like it won't be like, oh, Christ is here, Christ is there. It's like kind of a, no one will be able to deny this. Everyone will be aware of this. I'm really curious as to the fulfillment of that, what that means, what that looks like. But we take Jesus at, at word value that this is a good refutation of those people that actually say, um, you know, Jesus has returned. But I think also with this idea of, um, you know, the theory that Jesus has revealed in modern day cult leaders or the theory of Jesus as spiritual leaders throughout the ages, these are linked somewhat. Um, but I feel like there's kind of like a slightly different, different realization with the second Jesus as spiritual leaders throughout the uh, ages, because there's kind of a religious appropriation where these cult leaders are trying to say, uh, they're trying to claim events in a revelation chronology. You mentioned that particular scholar before, and they're still trying to say Jesus has returned, like the, the the end has begun. Here it is. This is you know I'm Jesus, and this is actually the confirmation. Um, and so I think this claim could actually have some merit, right? Because how can we know? Mm. How can we know whether like how do you refute that? Yeah. Um, what would you say to that in that instance? Um, we could look to some text that says every eye will see and every ear will hear. However, that again comes down to interpretation on your eschatological viewpoint. If you're not pre-millennialist, you'll likely not interpret that in the same way. But I think I'd just go back to what you mentioned before, Jared. Look at their fruits. Look at the prophecy that has or has not been fulfilled test them against scripture. And this is, again, why we as Christians need to familiarize ourselves with scripture, not just read it, not just do devotions. Those, those things are great, definitely wonderful. But study the Bible. Uh, one of the Psalms says, he who loves the Lord studies his word day and night. You know, we, it's not a salvation matter don't get me wrong but we need to familiarize ourselves with god's word as best we can um i'm definitely guilty of that uh, don't get me wrong i'm not casting stones um but we as christians in general need to familiarize ourselves with the bible because not only will that prepare us for 
not only will that prepare us for false claims of false messiahs, but that will also prepare us for witnessing the gospel to many people. And also, hey, if, if we have a greater academic knowledge, then should we get into a discussion with a co-worker or a, or a, co- you know, um, a friend at school or something of the sort, you know, we're more prepared for the, uh, for some of the accusations that they may throw against Christianity. Now, some may say, you know, they're not actually looking for an answer. They're just wanting to argue. That may be the case, but the more we learn about biblical wisdom, mm-hmm. the more we will be able to discern, is this person open to what God wants them to hear? You know, mm-hmm. we, we can better present the gospel the more we understand it. it, it it's just, that's basic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my answer would be familiarize yourself with scripture. Yeah, I, I think when we did the um, the Wimps podcast, you know, talking about the Mother God cult, mm. we mentioned um, Mike Winger. Um, yeah. And Mike Winger is a great Bible teacher present on YouTube. Um, yeah. One of his approaches in talking about this, because you can dissect different cults and actually say, this is why this doesn't work, or this is why this is inconsistent. But the, the methodology he advocates that is most successful is really know your scriptures. Because mm. if you really know your scriptures, that's the source of wisdom that you can actually use yeah. to actually show why these don't stack up. Yeah. And I think and, this, this yeah. sorry. And I was going to say, and I feel comfortable speaking on your behalf that we also advocate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally. It's like, because I think that's, um, that's what you're advocating here, bro. Like, and I totally agree. It's, there is this idea that actually, if we want to see this, we, we need to see actually, if these people are claiming either historically or contemporarily that they are Jesus returned, that they are messianic, we need to look at the character of Jesus as presented scripturally, really know that character and say, well, does that match? And I think you, if you really know that presentation of scripture, John 10, my sheep know me and hear my voice, you'll have a clear instance of like, this person is not who they're actually saying that they are. Yeah. Um, this is kind of presented like this idea of um, progressive Christianity and Baha'i faith and, and Hindu, Hinduism. Who mm-hmm. depict Jesus as some sort of uh, manifestation of God, avatar? Like, yeah. um, you know, shout out to uh, Richard Raw. You know, we talked about in the progressive uh, Christianity yeah. cast. Yeah. yeah. Um, which again is kind of like a conflation or a syncretism, a watering down of these dogmatic distinctions. Yeah. But again, like uh, what we see consistently as we're working through these series is that dogma is often mutually exclusive like yeah. two things can't be true right it's where actually the claims for example of islam and, and jesus and christianity and jesus they don't match up because they're yeah. saying two different things and so they are by extension mm. two different religions for that and many other reasons mm. um uh, just a few verses i wanted to read here is just kind of a wrapping up on this section of the podcast talking about jesus revealed in modern day cult leaders and Jesus says, uh, spiritual leaders throughout the ages. Um, in Galatians 1, verse 6 to 10, we see Paul saying, um, warning about this kind of exact dynamic um, in, in the churches, um, which is an interesting thing to consider in and of itself. We'll talk a little bit about this dynamic of false prophecy. 
the yeah. fact that it's attested to in scripture and in the new testament and not just once a number of times means that this is something that will be faced again and again and so yeah. the principle of actually really being people of the word is super important here um, Paul says, I am shocked that you were turning away so soon from God who called you to himself for the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Yeah. And here's, here's the harsh one. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven. Uh, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you are, you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Love that last line. Yeah. <laughs> but this is consistent with a Old Testament view of false prophecy. If people claim to speak for God, and then it showed by extension what they were saying was not true. The Torah command was stone them, kill them, because they are presuming to speak for God, exploit the people, mistreat the people, in all the other like you know psychological, spiritual abuse dynamics that come with that. Here's a similar principle where actually Paul is saying, if anyone is actually saying any, giving you a presentation of Jesus other than what we've presented, may God's curse fall upon them. Heavy stuff. Let's really be discerning about like, is this person when I think about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returning, is it um this guy who I was gonna say something that probably wasn't very kind? <laughs> um, is it just my neighbor Jim who started up his uh, own commune down the street? Uh and actually has numerous numerous people in the neighborhood now actually becoming yeah. part of that cult. Probably not. Yeah, probably. Could be. Probably not. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And it, um, yeah. Some, something I just wanted to add um, to listeners who, who were hearing this and Jared briefly mentioned Hinduism and how Hinduism and Baha'i similarly have uh, kind of syncretic views of Christ and Baha'i, it's kind of like they believe that the great Baha'u'llah, um, a prophet of God, has come in many forms in the past as Jesus, Muhammad, I think. They think he came as Buddha. Don't quote me on that. Um, and then later came as Baha'i, who delivered this message of the Baha'i faith. Um, there are very much all roads lead to Rome kind of uh, religious system. Um, or at least most roads, um, Hinduism being quite similar, um, some taking a more pantheistic approach and some taking a polytheistic approach. Now, when a lot of people within the West are talking to uh, talking to Hindu or Baha'i people, I have noticed this, I have experienced this myself, we bring along these truth claims. We bring along these ideas of this is this has been demonstrated historically. These are claims that Jesus made to be the one true God. The worldview is entirely different. We have a completely different worldview in the West that 
speaks more to uh, objective truths and uh, certainties and absolutes. The, the Hindu worldview is, is far different from that. They will often believe things like this is true, but that is also true. Um, and like Jared was saying, it's the progressive syncretic view. So if anyone is wanting to work on uh, apologetics within similar communities, uh, again, I will repeat myself, familiarize yourself with scripture first. And then take a course on worldviews. Look up Dr. Nancy Piercy. Um, uh, a great book that I have. I don't have it right now. It is Understanding Times. It's published by a group called Summit. Um, Yeah, Understanding the Times, a survey of competing worldviews, published by a couple different people, um, but look that up. It's very helpful. But yeah, also Dr. Nancy Piercy, great work on worldview philosophy uh, pertaining to religions and the like. Um, Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I totally, I totally affirm that. Like, uh, yeah, know your scripture that's a pretty good and consistent one for all these theories as well because <laughs> um we've we want to try and actually wear definitely we're applicable and that's with most of them touch yeah. a bit of scripture um to actually show how this is actually one to be expected that there's going to be people that actually uh, present different gospels and mm. two actually able to be defended against yeah but with that let's jump into our next one caleb's got a bit to speak on here regarding the theory regarding jesus and mary magdalene um this was made popular in dan brown's work the da vinci code the theory that actually jesus was essentially a man you know didn't actually die on the cross uh the swoon theory as some scholars some some skeptical scholars have actually put it um married mary magdalene who was one of his followers one of uh, his disciples um and that actually basically you know had children died wasn't in any way divine necessarily um it's also said that actually the controversial um these you know contested gospel of mary had some ideas that contributed here um this has been said as a gnostic gospel but um caleb is actually when we we're talking before this was i uh, going to say actually how actually that's not the case and let me explain why um there's also a conspiracy around this idea about jesus and mary magdalene being husband and wife Mm. um that this was silenced in church history um due to the woman in leadership doctrine being dismissed um but yeah a bit there to unpack caleb what what's your thoughts on this okay i'll start off with the swoon theory Mm. um the the idea that jesus faked his death or Mm. passed out on the cross Hmm. i won't spend too much time on this i will just read this from uh dr colleen schreier uh, who is an associate professor in the department of biology and chemistry at um uh, it's uh, a pacific university 
I believe, or maybe they're the people who have released it. Either way, it's, it's in California. Many of you may have heard this, so forgive me um, if, if you're sick of hearing this every Easter service or so. Um, this is a scientific uh, description of what would have happened to Jesus when he was beaten, tortured, and then beaten and tortured and crucified. Pilate orders, oh, hang on. Let's say this. So starting off after the Passover celebration, Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane, Gethsemane to pray. During his anxious prayer about the events to come, Jesus sweats drops of blood. There is a rare medical condition called hemohydrosis, during which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands break down. Blood released from the vessels mixes with the sweat. Therefore, the body drops sweats of blood. Oh, sorry, sweats drops of blood. Um, this condition results from mental anguish or high anxiety, a state Jesus expresses by praying, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Hemohydrosis makes the skin tender, so Jesus' physical condition is already slightly worsened. Traveling from Pilate to Herod and back again, Jesus walks approximately two and a half miles. He has not slept, and he, is, and he has been mocked and beaten. In addition, his skin remains tender from the hemohydrosis. His physical condition worsens. Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged as required by Roman law before crucifixion. Traditionally, the accused stood naked, and the flogging covered the area from the shoulders down to the upper legs. The whip was no simple whip. It was known by many as a cat of nine tails. Uh, it consisted of several strips of leather. In the middle of the strips were metal uh, balls that hit the skin. Uh, in addition, uh, causing deep bruising. In addition, sheep bone was attached to the tips of each strip. When the bone makes contact with Jesus' skin, it digs into his muscles tearing out chunks of flesh and exposing the bone beneath. The flogging leaves the skin on Jesus' back in long ribbons. By this point, he has lost a great volume of blood, which causes his blood pressure to fall and puts him into shock. Human body attempts to remedy imbalances such as decreased blood volume. So Jesus' thirst is high. His body's natural response to his suffering, if he would have drank, uh, yeah, if he would have drank water, his blood volume would have increased. Roman soldiers placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and a robe on his back. The robe helps the blood clot, uh, similar to putting a piece of tissue uh, um, a piece of tissue on a cut from shaving to prevent Jesus from sustaining more blood loss. The, keep in mind, the Romans were experts at killing. They knew how to kill. They, they had the science of killing down. A lot of modern day people look at, think, oh, they're ancient barbaric people. They knew how to kill. The thorn, yeah, as they hit Jesus in the head, the thorns from the crown push into the skin and he begins bleeding profusely. The thorns also cause damage to the nerve that supplies the face, causing intense pain down 
his face and neck. As they mock him, the soldiers also belittle Jesus by spitting on him. They rip the robes off Jesus' back and the bleeding starts afresh. Jesus' physical condition becomes critical. Due to severe blood loss without replacement, Jesus is undoubtedly in shock. As such, he is unable to carry the cross, and Simon of Cyrene executes this task. Keep in mind, there's another um, theory here that Simon replaced Jesus. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of people watching. They would have noticed. They will also would have noticed that this new guy isn't covered in bruises and blood. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between three to 400 BC. It is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by humankind. The English language derives its word, derives the word excruciating from crucifixion, acknowledging it as a form of slow, painful suffering. Its punishment was reserved for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Victims were nailed to a cross. However, Jesus' cross was probably not the Latin cross, but rather a towel cross, a capital T-looking one. Um, the vertical piece, the stripes, remain in the ground permanently, or remains in the ground permanently. Uh, the accused carries only the horizontal piece, the patibulum, uh, up the hill, which is the this horizontal piece, yeah. Atop the patibulum lies a sign, the titulus, uh, indicating that a formal trial occurred for a violation of the law. In Jesus' case, this reads, this is the king of the Jews. Um, the accused needed to be nailed to the patibulum while lying down. So Jesus is thrown on the ground, reopening his wounds, grinding in dirt and causing bleeding. They nail his hands to the patibulum. The Greek meaning of hands also includes the wrist. It is more likely that the nails went through Jesus' wrists. If the nails were driven into the hand, the weight of the arms would cause the nail to rip through the soft flesh. Therefore, the upper body would not be, uh, not be held to the cross if placed in the wrist. The bones in the lower portion of the hand support the weight of the arms, and the body remains nailed to the cross. The huge nail, seven to nine inches long. Now, these aren't just small nails. They're, they're very thick. So similar to this, which is what I've got as a remembrance for those who are watching on video. But much bigger than that. The huge nail, seven to nine inches long, damages or severs the major nerve to the hand, the meridian nerve, upon impact. This causes continuous agonizing pain up both of Jesus' arms. Once the victim is secured, the guards lift the patibulum and place it on the stripes already in the ground. As it is, Jesus lifted, uh, sorry, as it is lifted, Jesus' full weight pulls down on his nailed wrists and his shoulders and elbows dislocate. In this position, Jesus' arms stretch to a minimum of six inches longer than their original length. It is highly likely that Jesus' feet were nailed through the tops as often pictured in this position with the knees flexed at approximately 90 degrees. The weight of the body pushes down on the nails and the ankles on the, and the ankles support the weight. The nails would not rip through the soft tissue 
as would have occurred with the hands. Again, the nail would cause severe nerve damage. It severs the dorsal uh, pedal artery of the foot and acute pain. Normally to breathe in the diaphragm, the large muscle that separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity must move down. This, enlarge, this enlarges the chest cavity and air automatically moves into the lungs. Inhalation. To exhale, the diaphragm rises up, which compresses the air in the lungs and forces the air out. Exhalation. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, causing more pain to exhale. In order to speak, air must, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation. The Gospels note that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. It is amazing that despite his pain, he pushes up to say, forgive them. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen, due to uh, difficulty in exhaling, causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries, uh, begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart, uh, pericardial effusion, and lungs, uh, pleural effusion. The collapsing, the collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart, myocarditis, infraction, uh, no, infarction, sorry, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac arrest, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. After Jesus' death, the soldiers break the legs of the two criminals crucified alongside him, John 9, 32, causing suffocation. Death would then occur, quick, occur quicker. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. Instead, the soldiers pierced his side to assure that he was dead. In doing this, it is reported that blood and water came out, referring to the watery fluid surrounding his heart and lungs, which was mentioned earlier. So thank you all for sitting through that. Uh, for a lot of people, it's a very emotional thing to listen to that is what our savior went through it's surprising that he didn't die sooner than what he did considering the torture he endured in the days leading up anyone who endorses the swoon theory and here's this you're an idiot <laughs> i'm i'm not going to be gentle about it you are going against medical science that is undoubtable mm, it's, it's a sweet it's theory it's, it's offensive it's insulting yeah. isn't it really yeah, yeah um, it's insulting and like it, it ought to be said as well like um the roman guards that would have overseen all of that those proceedings mm. uh i've heard it said that it, like 
their neck was on the line in, in the most you know literal of terms yeah. if they didn't oversee the execution and the person did not die accordingly um yeah. that like it was a capital punishment if that person survived in any sense so there was definitely a an obligation on their part to get it right to make sure the person did die yeah. um that's just a, you know a contextual cultural piece of explanation yeah. that actually further proves um that the historic account of jesus dying actually was yeah. the case um yeah definitely conflates the idea of um that jesus did not die on the cross um yeah, yeah. i think yeah. as well like I, I should say here as well like um William Lane Craig has done quite obviously uh, uh, quite a decent work on actually proving the historicity of the Gospels and actually that they are accepted as historical accounts, not just religious, therefore fictional accounts. Mm-hmm. So this the narrative accounts of things that have happened, the historical accounts of things that have happened can be taken as such. And moreover, there's independent attestation. Um, you've got Tacitus, who was a, a Roman historian, writes about Jesus um, and the fact that he did die. You've got Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, um, writes about actually the work and the claims that Jesus made, um, and the fact that he did die. I mean, yeah. neither of them uh, mentioned the fact that he was resurrected. I think that would be what you call believers, if that was the case. Yeah. But, um, that, in fact, leads more credibility to the fact if they didn't believe the claims about Jesus and yet still included it in their own accounts with different motives and different intentions as to why they wrote those accounts yeah. and still it bore worth mentioning historically that there was a man named jesus of nazareth who did miraculous works yeah. and who died under roman execution in this way um these are independent accounts that also verify the yeah. case that did in fact jesus did in fact live and die um and yeah. that the swoon theory is garbage yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, moving on within the ideas of uh, Mary Magdalene um, potentially being a lover or, or, or a bride or of Christ. First off, church tradition has never taught this. The Bible, it does not teach this. Is it true? We need to look at the sources to find this out. Now, where this comes from is uh, there is a book called the Nag Hammadi. Uh, The Nag Hammadi was discovered in, it's named after the area it was discovered at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. It was discovered in 1945 and written in Coptic. Um, These texts are dated about a century later than um, the... New Testament. Um, now within the Nag Hammadi, within the Nag Hammadi, uh, there is an idea that there are several Gospels: uh, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. I can't remember all of them. One of them, I think, Thomas includes like the the infancy stories there's also the gospel of judas which is one of the most well known um yeah talks about stories of jesus as a child 
he ran around turning mud into a sparrow. And when a kid told him off, he cursed him with blindness or he cursed him with death, I think. Um, and then when the kid, yeah, he cursed him with death. And when the kid's dad complained to Joseph, Joseph told off Jesus and said, don't tell me off, I'm the Messiah. And cursed the man with blindness until he repented. Very different painting of what Jesus is. Um, but anyway, uh, Michael Heiser, again, um, he decided to look into the gospel texts of the Nakamadi and um, other bodies within the Nakamadi that are not labeled as gospels, even. So the whole Nag Hammadi as a, as, a, as a piece. Throughout the Nag Hammadi texts, there are no mentions of Jesus being married, marrying anyone, being betrothed, engaged, having a romantic physical relationship, emotional remote romantic relationship. What is found is the names Jesus and Mary in conjunction or Jesus and the Saviour. Most of these, the most of the combinations of Mary and Jesus are Mary said to Jesus this thing, or even a note in the commentary referring to when an interaction between Mary and Jesus was happen, happening in the actual Gospels, the, the, the synoptic, synoptic Gospels and John. Now, where this idea of them being in a relationship comes from uh, looks like it comes from the Gospel of Mary. Um, there is one passage in the Gospel of Mary that says, uh, this is Peter speaking, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of the woman. Tell us the words of the Savior, which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. So he's just saying he loved her more than the other woman. He, he loved John more than the other men. There's not much to go on there. It's all speculation. There's one other passage. That's not yeah. even getting into if, like, you know, the actual document itself is credible, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you just take the claim at face value. Yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, lost a little bit of my intro to this next part in editing. However, I just figured I'd put this in here. Uh, just about to show you a clip from a video uh, from Michael Heiser talking about this very conspiracy theory about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Uh, take a look and see what you think. Now you might wonder, if there's no evidence in the New Testament or the Nag Hammadi texts, the Gnostic Gospels, and really all of the Gnostic material that we have from this period, for Jesus and Mary Magdalene being married, why did the Da Vinci Code create such controversy? It's actually something that happens in the novel. Flipping to the middle of the book, Again, one of the characters, Teabing, Sir Teabing, points to a passage in Dan Brown's story. And he says, the Gospel of Philip is always a good place to start. That's the end of his quote. And what he's doing in the scene is he's exposing Sophie, 
uh, one of the other main characters, the lead female character, to this notion that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. And so he's going to quote the Gospel of Philip. And she reads the passage in Dan Brown's book. And it says this, at least as the Dan Brown has it. We have, The companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. Now, that means that Dan Brown has one of his characters quoting an ancient text, one of these Gnostic Gospels, that has Jesus kissing Mary on the mouth. Is that text real? We didn't come across it in our earlier searching for evidence that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Is there such a text? Does it really say that? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. As we saw in our searching, the Nag Hammadi Gospels have been published in English, and they're easy to search in digital form. But for this matter about Jesus kissing Mary on the mouth, we actually need to go beyond English. There's an edition of the original Coptic manuscripts that you know, were the Gnostic Gospels, the Gnostic text from Nag Hammadi, that has also been published. Now, that text, that edition, is going to be crucial. If we look in the Coptic edition, we'll discover something shocking. Essentially, that Dan Brown did not tell his readers what was really in the Gospel of Philip. He has a character quoting a passage, but it's not really what's in the passage. Here's the line quoted by Dan Brown's character as it actually appears in the scholarly edition of the original manuscripts. This is the translation in the academic version of these texts. The companion of the, and then there's a gap in the text because there's something missing in the manuscript, is Mary Magdalene. Then there's the partial word of something, another gap. Then the word loved probably goes in there. Her more, so the companion of the blank is Mary Magdalene. Blank loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her blank. Now, the crucial point here is to notice the ellipsis dots. They denote places in the actual Coptic manuscripts, the stuff that we have from antiquity, that are missing in those manuscripts. The phrase that set off such a firestorm isn't even in the manuscript. We don't know where Jesus kissed Mary. There's a hole there. Literally, there's a hole in the manuscript. Additionally, there are footnotes associated with the missing word. I've marked the footnote references in both the English and the Coptic text for you visually. Let's read the footnote. The first thing we learn in the note is that the Coptic word translated kiss can be translated greet instead. And the editors comment that, quote, although kiss may be correct, the Coptic construction found here is not normally used in this sense, unquote. Now keep in mind what we're looking at here. The editors of the Gnostic Gospels are not out to diss the Gnostic Gospels. They are defenders of the Gnostic Gospels. They are the ones that wanted to, again, devote their lives academically to bringing these texts to light. They are not trying to cover anything up here in the name of orthodoxy. They're being honest. Although the kiss, you know, the translation kiss may be correct, the Coptic construction here 
is not normally used in this sense. But there's even more to consider in the footnote. The footnote concludes by suggesting several alternatives for the missing word, on her blank. Remember, the Da Vinci Code had on her mouth. Well, there's a hole there literally in the text. The footnote informs us that possibly it could read on her mouth, or it could read on her feet, or on her cheek, or on her forehead. How do we know that? Well, the Coptic words for feet, cheek, or forehead would all actually fit the number of spaces in the original Coptic manuscript. So they are all possibilities because in the ancient world, in the first century, and we see this in the New Testament and other texts, when people greet each other, remember the word kiss could be greet, when they greet each other, they might kiss each other on the cheek or on the forehead. We have scenes where Jesus is being kissed on his feet. Since we have that context, and since the Coptic term that could fit in this gap, in this hole, could be any one of these things, that's really where we're at with primary texts. We don't know in any factual way that this Gnostic gospel has Jesus and Mary making out. We just don't know that. We have to supply that. We have to imagine it. We have to insert it in the passage. And that's what Dan Brown did. Now, just by way of a little review, I want this to sink in. This is so dramatically different than what Dan Brown has in the Da Vinci Code, it's worth repeating and summarizing. How do scholars in fact know that these other possible renderings are possible and even probable? It's because of cultural context. And again, each of these other options can fit into the manuscript gap. The Gospel of Philip then provides absolutely no confirmation that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married or intimate in any way. But millions of people now believe just that because Dan Brown did not direct his readers to the actual primary source. Now by way of conclusion, it should be pretty obvious. We're trying to focus on primary sources for this question. There is no New Testament evidence that Jesus was ever married. There's no Gnostic gospel evidence that Jesus was ever married. Now, the truth is, it wouldn't matter if Jesus had been married. There's nothing in the New Testament or really any part of the Bible that would forbid this. It wouldn't alter his status in the New Testament as the Son of God and as the Savior of humankind. It's just that if we're going to be honest, we have to say, there's no evidence for this. And we don't want to just make stuff up. The heaven. Mm. And I love that that thing at the end of even if it's true, mm. what does it matter? Mm. What, it, what, what's what's your take on that? What do, if it is true? You're saying because the whole narrative is based on this very narrow one reference, it's it's not enough to develop the whole theory that oh jesus was all this because this is where the whole theory comes from is that what you mean well it's 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 that it if it is true mm. that they were married or in a romantic relationship mm -hmm. what difference does that make to the ultimate story that christ came 
as a manifestation of the one true God, Yahweh, to redeem his people uh, from permanent death, that, that, that they may believe in him, that, that he conquered death on our behalf. He, he took the penalty for our sins. He made a loving sacrifice. He, it, it makes no difference. It, it's clearly not true. It, it's clearly not true. But if it, if it were, I don't see, like, like Heiser said, I don't see the problem uh, with it. Jesus was a man. He was fully human. He was fully divine. Humans get married. Not all, but yeah, there, there, there's, there's no major issue. Even well, I would have kept within rabbinic tradition. They're expected to be remarried, weren't they? <laughs> now, there is one. I lie. There is one, and this leads into other conspiracy theories around mm. the Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Now, but these are all, these, these are nonsense. One of them is the idea of the Holy Grail. So for those of you who um, have watched Indiana Jones movies, you know, there's the Holy Grail, this mm-hmm. cup, that, the cup mm-hmm. that, that Jesus drank from. It's the. It's not even biblical. The idea, no. Grail. It, it, it's it's it? it, it's Last Supper, right? Last Supper. Yeah, chalice, the, that we're thinking. Yeah. Yes, it's Arthurian. It's a misinterpretation of what eternal life is. It, it, it's not realizing that Jesus is saying, "Believe in me, follow me, and have eternal mm. life." It's saying, "Drink from this physical cup, and you'll live on Earth forever," which is not anyway. There is is another idea of what the Holy Grail is amongst some religious conspiracy theories, and that is the bloodline of Christ. (laughs) This has often popped up in certain occult circles Mm -hmm. and in other circles, but it's some believe that those who are related by blood to Christ have special powers because a lot of occultists do believe Jesus himself was a practitioner of occult. Um, of, of occult magics, which is, I guess, is another you know spin-off theory rabbit hole segue again because it's like yeah. it's the appropriation of the man Jesus and saying like, oh, this fits our narrative because this is like yeah. that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. The other the other theory that uh, pertain that that requires Jesus and Mary Magdalene to be married mm. relates to, and again, we will get to this in, in part two. Uh, later on relates to mormonism Hmm. if um those of the church of uh jesus christ of latter-day saints or like they like to be called uh, lds um that they're trying to move away from the term mormonism as far as i'm aware Hmm. so the lds church may not still believe this it may not be a part of their doctrine anymore but that jesus had children on earth as well as uh, in heaven. Um, that's a whole nother thing. Um, that he had children on earth with Mary Magdalene and potentially other women. A whole polygamy thing. And that 
someone who was in that line was Joseph Smith, the prophet who <laughs> wrote the Book of Mormon, who translated the Book mm. of Mormon from mm. these ancient plates. So, again, and, that, and that's whether they believe that doctrine or not, that's not a fundamental to their um, to their faith anyway. So whether that mm. falls or not, that doesn't put the LDS faith aside. Um, mm. There are many other ways to do that. Mm. <laughs> um, many other ways to disprove their mm. views on truth. Mm. But either way, Mary Magdalene and Jesus weren't hooking up. Mm. Uh, if you watch, for those of you who may have watched uh, The Chosen, uh, it, it looks like they're developing a romance between Mary Magdalene and one of the disciples. Um, I can't remember which one it was. Which one? I think it's Matthew. Matthew, Matthew the text. Matthew, yeah. yeah, it looks like they're developing that. So, hey, but again, that's a theory, but maybe Mary Magdalene made it with Matthew. Mm. Um, I mean... Can a theory, like, you know, if it's regarding Matthew, it's not heresy, right? So it's just conjecture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But hey, maybe she, maybe she didn't stay a Christian for all we know. Either way, it's like you say, it's conjecture. It, it doesn't... All we have is that Jesus was close with her. And that, yes. that much is evident in the Gospels anyway. That's not something yes. that the church tried to cover up. Mm. Um, she was... She was one of the, depending on which gospel account, she was one of the women who discovered the empty tomb and one of the first to preach Christ risen. Yeah, I have I have the references here um, in Mark 16, uh, verse 1 to 8. It mentions that she was one of the ones visited the tomb. Um, Luke's in Luke's account, she actually appears at the cross and at the empty tomb. So she not only saw the death but also the resurrection. Yeah. Um, and she, she and her female companions, and they're not believed when they first convey the message to the apostles. That's in Luke twenty-four. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's worth mentioning as well. Like um, those references that are made, they're not in the Gospels. She's referred to in Luke eight as having seven demons cast out of her. Um, yeah, and actually being one of the uh, the people to first see him alive, like uh, it's been she's been called the an apostle to the apostles in some yeah. in some circles because yeah. she was the one who first saw Jesus. Um, yeah. and she uh, is a great testament for allowing women to preach the gospel to yes. men because yes. she was one of the first that women were the first people to preach Christ resurrected. Yeah, and like I suppose within church tradition, I can see why some people would develop their conspiracy that this truth was silenced, that um, there was a connection between Jesus and Mary Magdalene due to the women in leadership doctrine, uh, that being dismissed. The That's thing cool. is, yeah, but the thing is, like the way I look at it is like if the if the Gnostic gospel is taken as like the source text, it's spurious as it is there's enough within the gospels themselves that actually suggest, you know, um, the doctrine of women in leadership being a thing. So it, it's kind of like, you know, quoting 
Heiser a little bit, what does it matter? I guess in that yeah. sense, you know, that's another discussion about women and leadership as well. But, yeah. you know, within the source text, within the gospels themselves, there's enough there to actually build that theology, build that actual ecclesiology. Yeah. Um, and not to mention as well, like obviously you've got the passages regarding Jesus' ascension mentioned in all four of the gospels. Um, yeah. This is, if the gospels are taken as historical accounts, which they are, even by secular historians, um, then this is describing an event, you know, independently attested to in four separate accounts, and they all arrived at the same conclusion. And I'd also say as well, if we take Luke and Acts as a joint work, because they are, you know, practically all biblical, you know, theologians and historians and scholars do take them as a joint work, um, the Acts of the Apostles or the acts of Jesus in the spirit, as I've heard Tim Mackey of the Bible Project call it. Um, the Acts, the book of Acts, um, really just as a confirmation of everything that happened via Jesus's life, death, uh, ministry and resurrection, because yeah. it's just a, a vindication, a confirmation of, hey, everything that was happened here is now being confirmed by everything that these people you know, this fisherman, these carpenters, these tax collectors, this growing movement of the way, the Antioch Christians, you know, um, yeah. uh, this is a continuation of that development. Yeah. So I think like, you know, this idea of Jesus and Mary Magdalene uh, settling down, checking up, <laughs> it just, it's not consistent with what is considered the historical, the church traditional account of things. And, and not only that, it's considering what we heard from Heiser uh, around the the ideas on the, the ideas of this happening, not happening. The fact that there's no primary source material, the 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 fact that it's all conjecture. Except for, oh, except for, oh, gee, I, I don't know, the Gospels? Oh. <laughs> it's, a problematic, it's a problematic idea that just because these two were close, a man and a woman were close, they had to be romantically involved. It, it, that just shows a, a flawed view of men and women interacting, you know? It's, it's a sad view, you know? If a man and woman are close, well, there's got to be something there. It's a soap opera view. Yeah, like I remember I, I had that when um, when I was uh, an intern at church. There was a, 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 there were two other interns, both female. One of them I was just very good friends with, and we spent a lot of time together. Now, I learned some good lessons about this. We were not romantically interested in each other whatsoever, but we spent a lot of time together. We're just very good friends, and so many people in the church were constantly saying, "Oh, Caleb and her—they're gonna—they're hitting it off. They're gonna seal the deal any day now." And it was just so sad that mm. people couldn't see that we just had a genuinely good friendship. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, like that advances the idea of the humanity of Jesus that he had. <laughs> I want to say platonic, but it's like we don't want to be Greco-Roman here. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say I'll say for the use of the word, you know, he had a platonic relationship with yeah. uh, uh, with his disciples. You know, he had you know relationships that were friendly and you know brotherly and sisterly. You know, um, but guys, it's probably here at this point that we should say um, we want to continue this conversation in a part two. 
um, because we have some doozies we still need to get through and need, you know, appropriate yeah. time. The likes of uh, the churches dismiss Jesus's theories on reincarnation yeah. or the likes of uh, Jesus simply didn't exist. We've hinted at that one a little yeah. bit. Um, or as uh, Caleb has teased us, you tease with uh, Jesus as depicted by Mormonism. Um, yeah. which it's is also a fun one. Uh, we will be talking about the Jesus seminar. Yes, yes. Um, important uh, important works in like, you know, the turn of the 21st century, you know, uh, probably just before that, early 2000s, um, yeah. uh, where they, you know, produced a very secular um, yeah, yeah. yeah, of version of the Gospels. Yeah. As well as that, we'll also look at Jesus as depicted by Islam and Jesus as depicted by other religions generally to actually close off that particular cast. Um, but in the interim, stay tuned, and we hope you hopefully you've enjoyed this offering so far. Um, good to play a bit of ping pong with this and actually punt the ball around. Love your brain, bro. Thank you for it blessing was. us with it. I love it. And you guys engage in the comments, flame war us, you know, tell us where we're wrong. You know, can't, can't wait to actually hear what your thoughts are of the crazy theories. Um, what do you think of some crazy theories we've missed and we should address? Um, yeah. In between parts, we might have some time to actually address those and research those. So we'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. And and then, those, uh, sorry. And for those of you who disagree, I will take a page. Again, Michael Heiser's book, the, the, the clip that we showed you was from his uh, from his YouTube channel, Fringe Pop 321. Hmm. The tagline of this show that he does, he, he, he explores all kinds of wild and wacky and weird things from Bigfoot to aliens to theories about jesus to um all kinds the tagline of the show is uh the show that believes the world is strange but that thinking should not be strange so please please uh come to us if you disagree mm. but back your thinking up make sure <laughs> that, that you that you know what you're doing because if you want to convince me of something, it's it's got to be it's got to be convincing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not as dumb as I used to be. <laughs> um, I look forward to that. Yeah, um, you've already engaged well with a couple of our <laughs> commenters on our channel, so I'm looking forward to more of that. Um, until guys, uh, until then, guys, uh, tune in next time, and uh, God bless you. Kakite. Hey everybody, we've sold out and we have presence on other platforms. Jokes, but we're wanting to build our brand and we have uh, those associated with us and have those associated with us able to reach out and contact slash communicate with us in other spaces. Our heart is that we can reach more people, Lord willing, with what we have and created thus far that it sparks conversations and will help edify Christ's body. I mean, the vibe we're going for is very two or three gathered, kind of like, you know, Last Supper-ish, you know, like, uh, as you see here. Yeah, oh, oh. We want people to feel like, you know, it's a conversation across the dinner table. <laughs> so if you want to interact with us uh, socially other than on YouTube, check out our Facebook group under uh, the link we'll put in the description. Um, Clever Caleb may even be able to actually point to it here and be like, oh, I'm going to put it uh, as a tick box, as a thing here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. 
Maybe. Or if you. And finally, we know a number of you uh, access us via Anchor, but also a number via YouTube. If you want to see our ugly faces, <laughs> our ugly mugs, um, Christine's not here, so obviously ugly is the, <laughs> the word in use here. Uh, check us out on YouTube. Make sure to hit that thumbs up button and that bell button to subscribe. Yeah, go cue the outro music. <laughs> um, inversely, if you're sick to death of seeing our faces um, and wondering what's happening when I'm scratching my ass, um, <laughs> check out our podcast platforms instead via the anchor link above. Uh, to interacting with you more and more of me interrupting caleb that's gonna be great <laughs> yeah yeah oh we love interrupting each other here <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're still not joe rogan level we'll get there yeah he's chronic eh? yeah and we'll have the um the exclusive spotify um, wait can i look wait can we get joe rogan on the podcast looks like i'm looking at you eh? Straight yeah up. yeah i've got to look yeah it, it's it's inverted so it's difficult i don't know if i'm looking at you though when i do that so yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and every part of this will stay in the outro <laughs> indeed it will <laughs> christine's cool. gonna christine's gonna feel so fomo i can tell already. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay bless, bless you guys <laughs>